This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Frank Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run. Uh, the sixth edition is out and available wherever books are sold, so get a copy. Uh, in the sixth edition, we talk a lot about inflation and the pandemic, and we're going to be talking about all about those issues today on the show. We have two excellent guests for this conversation. Uh, please note, I'm a registered president of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. I am broadcasting live from Sea Island, Georgia, at the Future of Wealth Forum. We had two days of very interesting discussions hosted by LSEG, uh, a lot of interesting industry participants in, in the wealth management space and indexing space, uh, a really great conference. Uh, but today, we're focusing on the economy and inflation with, with two guests from the Cleveland Fed to share their views. Professor Siegel, of course, everybody knows he's focused on the economy and inflation. Uh, Professor, what's your reaction to the reports? Yeah, first of all, I'm not surprised the immediate reaction, and they're looking at at the wages. The the rest of the report is not red hot. I heard just say it's a red hot report. It is not red hot. Uh, First of all, the household survey uh, showed negative growth. Uh, secondly, and this is always ignored, is the fact that uh, honors, uh, the hours worked, is uh, went down uh, below expectation. Every tenth of a, a percent decline in hours worked is, is equivalent to several hundred thousand less workers at the same hour. That you know, so I didn't re- think that the, the hiring was 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 a strong part. Unemployment remained at six seven. Uh, I mean, three three point seven percent as uh, 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 pretty much as as expected. I didn't think it was a weak report on the employment. Don't get me wrong by by any means, but certainly on the employment side. But let's let's talk about the wages because that's what caused it. If the wages had you know they 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 were expected to be up three tenths, which I thought was too low, they're up six tenths. One should remember that year over year wages are up five percent. Um, I mean, that's still less than inflation. I've been emphasizing for months that this catch-up in uh, wage increases because the wage person, is, the wage earner has been falling behind uh, inflation and is now beginning to, to catch up. That's not inflationary when you catch up wages. Wages are still decline in real terms um, from what it was before. So I... You know, I, even Bullard says I don't look at wages as a source of pressure. And uh, Powell himself has equivocated on how he looks at wages. He looks at tight reports, but, you know, whether wages themselves. But the, the market is focused on the wage part, um, immediate down 1.5%, I think, on S&P. Um, uh, but I think every other report that I saw this month, particularly the ISM report that we got yesterday, weak prices, um, uh, and everything else is pointing towards weak prices. So I, 
I don't think that this report changes the scenario uh, that I've been, you know, putting forth uh, over the last uh, several months. That inflation is mostly behind us. We're going to get wage catch up. We're going to get some slowing in uh, employment. We're going, but we're going to get an increase in, in, in productivity. I think going forward from the terrible hit early on. So as a result, I think GDP growth might be decent, even though labor growth is low. But um, uh, you know, to, to just say because uh, the wage earner is catching up, that is a reason. Oh my God, that we have to clamp down away. They're the last to respond. They're in catch-up mode. There's minimal inflation from that, and everything else is still down. But he locked himself into 50. I think the data in the next weeks will confirm 50. Uh, the question is, in February, will they continue to rise or not? And uh, again, it's my hypothesis that maybe the 50 in December will be the last Fed uh, increase um, uh, uh, if the data continues to come in uh, as it has in the future. Uh, wages are not a source of the inflation of inflationary pressures uh, that uh, uh, are of concern right now uh, in the economy. The market certainly cheered his comments uh, this week. Uh, yeah. were, do you think he said anything new? I mean, he keeps saying that they're yeah. going to have to keep rates high. Well, he, he, yeah, and, and so the 50 was a comfort because the market was, well, you know, uh, equivocated between 50 and 75. And then he said, uh, he said a couple of things that I thought were totally at odds with the data. He said, we have seen very little progress on inflation this year. And I, I said, I almost said to myself, what planet is he on? Uh, I mean, I can point to almost every indicator that has shown progress. On, on inflation, if you look at current you know, market prices of anything that's going on, and wages are going to continue to go up because they're in catch-up mode. Um, but uh, there is tremendous progress. He said we're going to have a few more increases, but I think as the weight of evidence comes in, uh, in that, uh, and it will be that early February meeting where you know he sort of hinted at another 25 basis points or 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 so. My feeling is the weight of the inflation data. Uh, will actually point towards uh, not an increase, but it is early call. I mean, we're we're you know, we're still six weeks away from uh, from that uh, uh, phenomena. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's so. I think they comforted. It's the beginning of a pivot. The safe fifty that we've made progress. But don't forget, seventy-five. Bullard was for, for seventy-five. A number of others were seventy-five. They actually say it are slowdown could start as early as December. That, those words you know, sparked an incredible rally, as they should. It's like, I'm beginning to get it. Uh, they're going to be discussing that, obviously, more as time goes on, as the data actually uh, comes on. It's interesting also that, as, as you know, um, we've had an appointment of Austin uh, Goolsby as a professor at uh, Chicago as president of the Chicago Fed. I know him. He's a very smart, good economist, a market man. Um, uh, and although he has not been like a dove like I am in terms of, you know, don't raise it too high, he's really, I think, really smart at interpreting the data. This is a good addition. He will be a voting member on the FOMC next year. Um, and his, his voice is going to be very important, a very, very good appointment. 
Well, we'll try to get him for Behind the Markets. We are talking to two Cleveland Fed economists today, so we're looking forward to that conversation. Professor, I know you're traveling on the plane at the moment. Thanks for some comments. Yeah. Nice to get a few of his quick comments. The markets have actually rebounded from their very opening levels. A lot of it's all circulating around interest rates and bonds. Um, sort of the bond yields had spiked up. I think that caused pressure this morning, and now they've been settling back down. We're going to talk about all these issues, their reaction to the professor's comments. With We have Robert Rich, who's the director of the Center for Inflation Research and a senior economic and policy advisor in the research department at the, at the Cleveland Fed. Uh, Dr. Rich specializes in macroeconomics forecasting. Um, he's done a lot of publishing on prices and wage inflation. So Robert, we just heard the professor talk about that. Um, we've talked, you've written about a product, trends in productivity growth. Um, welcome to Behind the Markets. Thank you very, uh, Jeremy, very much. And, and thanks for the opportunity to talk with you today. We also have your colleague. Um, so we have a joint tag team interview here. We have Ed, Ed Notek, who's Senior Vice President and the Associate Research Director at the Federal Reserve Bank Cleveland. Also, he leads the department's macroeconomic forecasting group um, and develops models for econ forecasting and policy analysis. Dr. Notek, Ed, welcome to Behind the Markets also. Thanks, Jeremy, great being here. Um, Robert, maybe you could tell us a little bit about just the Center for Inflation Research. We're gonna focus all on inflation research, but so people know what you all do Let's give the the audience a little bit about your your whole group to start the show. Yeah, that'd be great. Thanks so much, Jeremy. So I, I wanted to let the audience know that um, in 2018, uh, the Federal Reserve Bank in Cleveland had uh, an initiative where we actually um, established uh, the Center for Inflation Research. Um, and as you can imagine, the, the center is 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 principally focusing on on inflation. Um, and I wanted to encourage your audience to to visit. We have a website there. And there's a lot of resources that the um, that that are being made available for them. So we have research that we do. Some is you know sort of research geared towards academics. We have working papers. Uh, we have other research that is geared more sort of at a somewhat you know lower level, but economic commentaries. Uh, but then also the the website hosts a number of um, important data and indicators. And um, I'll mention some of them, and maybe Ed will want to go into details. Uh, we we create the 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 median um, CPI, the trim mean CPI. Those indicators are there. We also have a median PCE, so these are all measures of underlying inflation. We also have um, a nowcasting model, which actually provides you know sort of current quarter estimates for both uh, CPI and PCE headline and core. So to the extent that one's looking at, at those as sort of indicators of sort of, especially in these times, looking for turning points and, and things along those lines, we have now casting that's, that's also available there. And we have a number of other data and indicators that are available. So um, as I said, the center, um, it was fairly quiet the first two years, as you can imagine, and then suddenly we got a lot of attention and um, we welcome actually the attention and very much would like to have the audience sort of welcome them to visit our, our, our website. But as I said, there's a little bit of everything uh, that's there, additional information on conferences, but but principally um, the research and the data and indicators that I think the members of your audience would find to be quite useful. I don't know if Ed wants to add anything that I might have overlooked. No, I think that's great, Rob. I think, you know, we have lots of resources for lots of different audiences, uh, people who, you know, are just thinking about inflation and want to know more about the basics. You know, there's kind of a, a section for people who have a little bit of knowledge and want to learn more. Um, and then we have certainly stuff for the specialist audiences too. So 
lot of great stuff there. Encourage you to take a look at it and check it out. So who wants to respond first to what you heard from the professor? Um, you know, he has been on the case that inflation is coming down and we'll talk through some of the reasons he thinks that. But what Robert, do you want to take a first crack at what you heard some from his comments on the wage inflation, um, wages driving inflation, and, and and just what is your current outlook for inflation? Do you do you do you agree with his assessment that it's that it's coming down? So um, yeah, I think that in general, I'm, I'm in agreement with that. I, I'll sort of put my own spin in terms of where I think the sources and the reasons for the moderation in inflation may be coming from. Um, I think there's a combination of factors, so I'll, I'll kind of list them and then perhaps go into a bit more detail here. Um, I think part of the reason why I, I would see is sort of some moderation, you know, that will start taking place. I think part of it is I think there's going to be sort of a fading of sort of the pandemic friction. So I think that from just the supply side, for example, I think we've seen from various indicators that that the bottlenecks and the supply, you know, the supply chain disruptions that we're seeing some improvement taking place on that front. I mean, it's still not where it was pre-pandemic, uh, but there has been relatively steady improvement taking place over the last five months or so. Um, then obviously we have to talk about on the demand side where we're seeing sort of tighter monetary and, and fiscal policy, which will also, I think, act as a restraint. Um, and I think there's some some narratives out there suggesting that, you know, there's some price sensitivity from consumers that are taking place also. Um, as far as where uh, some of the other components here, I think what we're finally seeing, um, I think it's very important maybe to take a step back, ask where the inflation surge came from, and then sort of talk a little bit about those components. So if I can just take a moment here, I think it's important, you know, to, to emphasize that a lot of that initial surge in inflation came from goods prices. And, you know, that that essentially reflected a number of factors, right? We had at the, the on the onset of the pandemic, we had a lot of monetary and fiscal support um, that was sort of causing aggregate demand to, to grow at a very robust rate. But another very important um, aspect of the pandemic is that there was the very significant rotation on the part of consumers out of services into goods. Uh, that That's not surprising, right? The goods sector, uh, in some sense, was sort of shut down. Um, consumers um, had a lot of either pent-up demand, excess savings. They rotated into, into goods. But then it was the goods sector itself that was hit, getting hit hard by sort of the bottlenecks and supply-side disruptions. And so if you actually look at whether you look at the CPI or you look at the PC price index, you can see there was just this noticeable rise that took place in goods inflation that was responsible for that initial surge. Um, and then we've subsequently seen some sort of carryover or some firming taking place in services. Having said that now, um, looking for some of the forces that might actually then be helping this moderation, we're actually seeing at least initially, we're now seeing goods inflation moving down um, from, from its elevated levels. In fact, the most recent reports in the CPI and the PCE actually showed goods inflation being negative. Um, and, you know, that that that's obviously important, but I think it's also important to emphasize that prior to the pandemic, for the decade prior to the, the pandemic, I mean, goods inflation actually was negative and was an important restraining factor for overall inflation. So as far as one of the factors that I think I would, you know, point to in terms of why we see moderation taking place, I think we're finally seeing goods inflation moving down. Obviously, there'll be a critical question further out as far as how far down it's going to move, but at least we see some churning taking place there. Services inflation, well, um, that's still elevated, that's still firming, um, but as I'm sure will be part of the discussion, um, one of the important components on the services front is, is, is sort of shelter inflation. 
And on that front, we know that within shelter inflation, there's a there's a bit of a lag between sort of new leases, rents, and and that. And we're actually seeing that new new leases, rents are actually declining. And we know that that's eventually going to feed through the pipeline also. So if you're yes. asking me sort of where where we well from my own view of where and why we think inflation will be moderating, I would say it's a it's a combination of sort of goods inflation finally moving down. And then in the pipeline being, um, you know, an important source, the 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 movements in, in sort of new new rents will eventually feed through. So um, I'll stop there and, and let Ed obviously or carry on however you'd like to. Let, let me just I want to drill into the you brought up exactly where we were going to go with that question. So you knew what's on our mind. Um, maybe you could talk through this question and, and it goes into like what should the Fed look at? Why does the Fed look at the way you do or or just how the you could you could go you go to like how the official stats started the way they did. And for for listeners, um, maybe explain one one example per, the professor often makes is when when you get a new car prices, you know, they, 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 they we buy new cars maybe every eight years. But when you do inflation on new cars, um, do they do a fraction of the new cars or do they put all of the inflation, you know, on, on a month to month basis? But for rent and owner's equivalent rent, you, you talked about the new leases are coming down, but it's going to take time to come into the CPI. Is that an accurate uh, analogy um, or, or how do you think through the owner's equivalent rent? And, and just sort of one statistic is, you know, housing prices were up 40 percent from March 2020 to 2022, but the, the shelter inflation was up like 11 percent. Um, you know, it, it, it took it was when we talked about transitory inflation, there was a lot more inflation. Now there's a lot less inflation because in the real world it's coming down. Maybe my colleague Ed, you want to? I'm going to tag. I'm going to tag team with Ed if that's okay. Great. No, no, thanks. Uh, thanks, Rob. Uh, there's a lot to unpack there, so maybe let's let's try and do it into pieces. Um, so first off, just at a you know, what do the statistical agencies do, right? So they need to have some concept of shelter costs. You know, for the average person, they spend a lot of money on shelter, whether it's rent, it's a mortgage, whatever. Um, but the way that the BLS and the BEA are doing things is that, you know, they, they have a certain part of the price index that is focused on rents because, you know, a certain number of people rent their houses. But then for homeowners, they want to kind of have a measure of what the imputed cost of owning, uh, of basically using your home um, is going to be. And so that's where this owner's equivalent rent concept is coming from. Statistically, OER, owner's equivalent rent, is based largely off of the rents that are collected from people who are renting, right? So, so they're using those rental numbers twice. They're using them once for rents, and then secondly for OER, owner's equivalent rent. Um, and then, you know, there is this conceptual issue of what's the right way to think about um, shelter inflation um, and the prices that people are imputing to the, the shelter inflation that they're, they're utilizing. So, you know, so there's this conceptual issue. So, you know, you can quibble about whether that's the right issue or not. And there are different countries that use different things. Um, and the ECB, you know, in the euro area, they're trying to put some some shelter component into inflation when they're thinking about inflation. You know, so these are just the measures that we have here. So your question is about, well, what's the right numbers to put into the rent index and the OER index? You know, is it the the new rents, the reset rents? Uh, it could potentially be some measure of house prices. That's not exact. That's not how they do it, but it could be that. And then there's this hybrid OER concept, which is again, you know, taking rents, but it's overall rents. It's not just the new leases. 
it's also going to be heavily influenced by leases from you know months ago or even a year ago and those of course can reset slowly so you know we have a number of things that are going on we have a, a tremendous shift in preferences towards uh you know certain housing um that's pushed up house prices as you noted um you have a lot of rent rent contracts that are very um negotiated infrequently um, and so the, the natural thing that's going to happen is that it's going to take a long time for rents to move up to match market rents of new leases. And, and that could take, you know, it could take six months, could take a year. That, those are kind of the typical, the norms. Um, but this could even take longer in my, in my view, right? Because you've had such a huge move in, in house prices. You've had big moves in new rents, like new contracts. Um, you know, sometimes it's the case that landlords don't want to push all that through to a, a current tenant. Sometimes they will and sometimes they won't. So, so you actually have a lot of different channels that are at play here that you have to take into account. So the way that the BEA, BLS are doing things is you know, they don't just want to focus on the new rents. They want to focus on, you know, what's the cost of housing for the economy broadly? And since it is the case that most people aren't paying the market rent, they aren't, you know, they aren't going to be resetting constantly. That's where you're going to have this lag relationship. And statistically, that's going to impose a delay in, in terms of what's going on in the market with like the up-to-date, you know, this is what the market price is today. Um, but, but I think that is accurately reflecting what people are paying, either explicitly through the rent channel or implicitly through the OER channel. Um, so, you know, I think the, the comparison that I would raise is one of like geography, right? So suppose that a part of the country you know, they just kind of, they're the leader in terms of rents. Rents go up there first. The rest of the country, rents go up later on. You know, you don't want to put all of your weight on the places where rents are going up first because most people in the country are, you know, facing lower rents. And so that's basically what's happening now. Um, it, you know, it may not be the perfect system. There may be improvements to be made out there, but it's at least a reasonable approximation to what people are paying or implicitly paying. Um, you know, I think the question is, the bigger question is, what do these new lease rents tell us about where inflation is going? And what the Fed's going to do about it is most importantly well, for, the, yes. for, and so, for everybody so, here. Right. So, so there's the issue of what's going on with inflation today and where is inflation going to go in the future? And so certainly uh, monetary policymakers, they, they are looking at what's going on with inflation today because that's very important for, for people's well-being. Um, but then they're also making forecasts of where inflation is going to go in the future. And they are certainly going to be looking at these forward-looking indicators and marginal rents and new new leases and things like that as they're making those forecasts. But there is this key thing, which is that um, what might have happened in the past between existing rents and new rents may or may not play out exactly this time as well. So you want to have you want to be cognizant of the fact that there's going to be uncertainty around this relationship um, because of the fact that you know the the movement in house prices has been so big, the movements in rents have been so big. You know, you can't just count on the fact that, oh, it's going to be six months or a year. It could take longer or it could be shorter. So you need to kind of see both the data, but then also be thinking about how the data are informing your forecast. Well, I will say we would take it encouraging if they're looking at the forward looking. You know, I think we all worry that they only are looking at the backwards looking numbers and stuff that happened a long time ago. But if, if you know, they're, they're, they're assessing policy and, and keep tightening because of this ownership of club and rent, which is not the real world, that is the the real worry. Um, let me just reintroduce our guests. We're talking with Robert Rich, Ed Notech, two economists from the Cleveland Fed on a day of the employment reports and a time we're all 
focus on inflation, what the FOMC is going to do in a coming few weeks and, and next year. Um, I want to, well, I, is there anything else on on the housing issue you all you all want to, I, I appreciate you saying that they're going to think about the forward looking. Any other comments, Robert, you'd make on that before we go to a different topic? No, I just I just want to reiterate, I think, the key points that Ed brought out, right? I mean, I, I think certainly this issue has gotten a lot of attention um, and, and certainly it's it it's something that everyone you know is, is talking about but I mean just to to reiterate the point that I've made I mean the idea is that with especially the new leases you know you don't necessarily want to just focus on them right they're because they're going to be reflecting the prices paid by a small and not necessarily representative minority um, but the other is then to really think about the new leases really useful for the purpose of sort of, you know, creating a leading indicator, which I think, Jeremy, yeah. goes to your point there. Um, so I think that, that again, um, I, I shouldn't say there's necessarily been a bit of a confusion, but there's been a lot of debate about this. But, but as Ed mentioned, and I think I would, you know, again, agree with him on, is that the new leases potentially going to, you know, it's very much a forward-looking component here. And I, and I, and again, I think everyone is well aware of sort of its usefulness. And I, I can assure you that policymakers are very aware of this issue in terms of how they're going to be thinking about, you know, setting policy and, and their forecast for inflation. Good. We, we, we sure hope that's the case. Now, one of the things that, that even we'd say Loretta from the Cleveland Fed has said, we've had Loretta behind the markets. She was good friends uh, with the professor. Um, but 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 Siegel is very upset at Powell on some of his comments on money supplies relation to inflation. So I'm curious for one of you to comment on this. So Siegel has has pointed out, you know, so from the pandemic, you had a 40% increase in M2. Um, you know, all the the Friedman. He went to Chicago to study under Friedman. You know, at long and variable lags, and and it, you know, 12, 18 months after the money supply explosion, you get the inflation. What's happened to money supply the last seven months is it's contracting. And he would say you want it to grow 5% a year, 2% from real growth in the economy, 2 to 3% from inflation, or 25 2 and a half, however you want to do it, 5% money supply growth. And we're contracting over seven months, almost never happens. Um, why do they say that there's no relation between money supply and inflation? And are you concerned about this money supply shrinkage? So I guess I'll, I'll take the first pass at that. Um, you know, that long-standing relationship, my understanding is that, you know, when you think about that money supply growth inflation relationship, that tends to be much more in terms of a cross-country type of relationship. The countries that overall tend to, tend to experience high monetary growth rates are going to experience sort of high inflation. Countries that are typically are experiencing low monetary growth rates experience low inflation. So again, that relationship to me has been more established in a cross-country sort of relationship. Within a particular country, though, um, I'm not sure that linkage has typically been as strongly affected. Um, that's simply because I think that within a country, there's lots of slippages in, in terms of the linkages that take place there. So, you know, my overall view is that that statement tends to hold better when you're looking across countries. But within a country, I think it's difficult to sort of typically find evidence suggesting there's this strong sort of linkage be between those those variables. Well, we're going to send you the, the stocks for the long run sixth edition right after the show. Uh, you can read the chapter on the 70s and 80s and and sort of the the big and 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 sort of the, the and and the inflation and the money supply over that period and how much more it was over that. Siegel's very passionate about that particular view that the money supply was the root cause of all that the the goods demand inflation and and where that came. 
Um, Ed, Ed, any, any comments from your side on that? But just to echo Rob, I mean, I think, you know, the, the instability of velocity, I think, is what causes many people to to quibble with the money supply relationship with prices. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think one of the big differences now, you know, we, we've had expansions in the money supply before that have kind of not shown up in prices. Now you see an expansion in the money supply that was coupled with a lot of other stuff, pandemic related, fiscal support, um, shifts in yep. preferences. You know, so certainly when you have those tailwinds alongside money supply growth, you know, I think it's pretty clear with the benefit of hindsight that all those factors together working in the same direction, they're pushing up prices. Um, so, you know, trying to disentangle money supply from that, that's always tough. But, you know, I think all those things working together, that that, hurt, that helps to push up inflation for sure. Let's come back to um, one of the key other key debates on the year uh, is we've been hiring all the workers and today's a jobs day. So we, we hired some more workers. The jobs report came in better than expected. Um, now, in the first half, we had declining GDP, like real GDP was declining. You hired like four million workers. One of the basic questions, like, what are those workers doing? Um, and, you know, it, they sort of saw this sort of record fall in productivity. Any comments on the productivity trends that you saw? Is it an outlier? Is it going to come back? You heard the professor to start the show thinks productivity is going to come back a bit. Do you agree? What What are the trends and, and where do you see it going? So I'll go ahead and take the, the first um, response to that. So I, as you had mentioned, I actually do work um, looking at trend productivity growth. Um, and typically, I've typically, I've, I'm have a model that basically looks at the behavior of trend productivity growth basically starting in the, the late 50s through the present time period. And this model basically tries to identify what I'll call sort of high versus low you know, productivity regimes. And not surprisingly, the model without necessarily choosing the dates has typically lined up very well with what the narrative is. That is, we typically, the model finds that, for example, from 60 to 73, the US was in a high productivity regime. Uh, then from 73 to about 95, it was in a low productivity regime, 95 to about 2005, back to high. And then since 2005 or so, back to a low productivity regime. Getting closer to your particular question, um, there was a very recent data release um, in which there was a, a very notable upward revision to productivity over the 2020-21 period. Um, so while it is true that during the first two quarters of this year uh, that productivity was quite was quite bad, as you as you noted, um, there had been a fairly notable surge in productivity preceding that. Um, so while you never want to sort of look at things sort of in, in particular time periods, if you sort of extrapolate through and think about things overall, it's pretty much consistent with our having been sort of within a, a sort of low growth productivity regime in some sense. So. Um, there went, there had been a notable increase prior to the the the, the two quarters this particular year. So um, I think that's important to keep in mind that productivity actually did surge sort of at the beginning of the, of the pandemic. I mean, I mean, one of the qu the quick things you saw in today's report was hours work ticked down a tenth. Um, that one of the things Siegel has hypothesized is that the in the work from home environment, maybe people are misestimating hours worked and people are working a lot less than they used to. People are on their phones doing all sorts of stuff. Do you, do you agree with that assessment or, or, or think that that's a, a valid argument? Well, I mean, I would certainly agree that 
given given the changed environment, the ability to monitor hours now is much more challenging than I think it has been. And I think there there's you know competing arguments in terms of the the measurement issue associated with that. But I mean, I think that's an important consideration. But it certainly is now with more work at home. I think that that certainly is a bit more challenging. We we were just talking on the first half about the the trends in productivity growth. One of the things we've been also writing a little bit about is where are are there long term real neutral rates in the economy? Uh, and if and, and so sort of the theory goes, uh, and you all can say if you agree or disagree that real rates, long term neutral real rates, tend to be very much a function of economic real growth in the economy, which is GDP. You know, essentially productivity growth times the number of workers and the trends in that demographics has been one of the the headwinds in real growth and 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 productivity growth has been trending in some ways down so Siegel thinks the real neutral has been trending maybe even as low as zero um is agree with some of the assessment on the the trends and the drivers and what's your sense of what's going on uh, maybe we'll kick it over to, to Ed for this one yeah, no, thanks, Jeremy. Uh, you know, really a key question, you know, this is uh, this is something that is re very relevant for setting monetary policy. So, you know, just in general, um, you know, you want to be thinking about where the neutral real rate is and where the, the actual real rate is. And then the difference between those is kind of the, the looseness or the tightness of monetary policy at a given point in time. Um, of course, estimating R star, as we call it, um, is very difficult. Um, you know, certainly there's a you know, school of thought out there that ties this notion of the neutral real rate to um, long run economic growth. I think there's a lot of modeling that helps to support that. Um, but, you know, a couple of points that I would just raise. So, so certainly, you know, it's very possible. I, you know, I think it's a it's a reasonable null hypothesis that the neutral real rate is still pretty low. Um, but, you know, a couple of points that I would just raise first off is that the empirical evidence on this issue is um, actually quite mixed. So there is some work out of the Cleveland Fed um, looking at the long run relationships between neutral rates and economic growth going back like 100 years. You know, when you do that, it's really tough to, dis to, to discern a, a robust correlation between growth in the economy and the neutral rate. So I think we want to be a little bit cognizant that, you know, what what it looks like is very tight in theory might not be so tight in the empirics. Um, secondly, I think is, you know, we just have to be cognizant that the world post pandemic may not go back to where we were pre pandemic. Um, so pre pandemic, I think there was this emerging consensus of a low R star world, um, one in which, you know, the ZLV would be binding, uh, you know, concerns over low inflation, um, policy space and all these issues, you know, we may still get there, but I don't think that's a sure thing. We've already seen certain things like globalization potentially moving in the opposite direction from where they had been. Um, but, you know, another thing um, that pops out of a lot of our models is that our star, this neutral real rate, is related to time preferences. And, you know, the pandemic is a shock for most people that they didn't really anticipate. And it's a, it's a mortality shock in some sense. You know, it, it, it puts in, in play the fact that, you know, maybe you don't have as much time as you thought you would. Um, and that, in, in terms of our models, just the way that you think about it, you know, that's kind of how people discount the future. And they might decide, oh, you know, I want to consume more now than, than, to, than I would in the future. 
um, to make up for that. And that directly affects the neutral real rate. So if people want to, you know, pull forward consumption, spend more, um, and, you know, you see low savings rates, which may be a function of high inflation, but that may be a, a preference shift too, that actually points to a higher neutral real rate, all things equal. Um, and, you know, that, that would be something that monetary policy would potentially have to respond to. That, that just means you'd have to have higher um, nominal rates to kind of offset that movement uh, in the neutral real rate. So, you know, I think it, 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 the, the jury is still out, um, but I think we want to be cognizant that there may be more, um, more possibilities out there than what we had thought the consensus was before the pandemic. I mean, this, this gets to the core of the conundrum, like, are we too restrictive today or not? Um, and, and like, how restrictive are you? Um, Siegel's obviously making the case that, you know, he made, he's made the case they should stop right now, that he thinks we're overly restrictive. Um, comment on how you see the economy play out next year. Is, is you know, the, the people talk about the soft landing. Um, where, where do you see unemployment and, and GDP heading next year? And, and I don't know if you, if you have a view on, on where the rates end up heading, but where, where do you see the economy and, and, G, and, and uh, employment heading? Yeah, so, uh, you know, this is, of course, the, the multi-trillion dollar question. So I guess Rob's, Rob's chuckling, so I'll, I'll take the lead on this one. Um, you know, so certainly the, the risks of a recession have risen. Um, the risks of a recession have risen in no small part because inflation is so high and it's being persistently high at that too, right? So, and, and you have shocks that are going on across the globe that are, that are causing um, difficulties for that soft landing and helping to push up inflation. Um, you know, so there is certainly a you know, possibility of a recession out there. I don't know that that's my base case. I do think, you know, that there is, there is scope for a slowing in growth below trend growth, um, potentially with a slowing labor market um, where job openings come down further. They have been coming down. They could come down further um, where, you know, you might see, you know, lower, lower job gains. Um, but not a, a nonlinear move in the economy that would be associated with the recession. So, you know, if you press me on putting numbers to that, um, you know, are we like in a 50-50 world or a 60-40 world one way or the other? You know, that, that's not an unreasonable place to be. Um, but, you know, I do see, you know, my, I guess my base case is, you know, a, a slowing for sure, um, but uh, you know, not not a sure thing that you're going to tip into a recession. And I think you know, you look across economists. Um, you know, there's obviously diversity of views. You look at some of the consensus forecasts out there. It's almost like you know, you can kind of see this tension. You know, some are in the the tip over camp, and some are in the the sluggish growth camp. And you know, conviction in one way or the other. Um, you know, if you're making a point forecast, you have to pick one or the other. Um, so I'm going to kind of hedge and say, you know. I'll put a little bit more weight on the, the soft landing, but you know certainly there's a risk of a recession out there as well. So Jer if I could just add I, I, to what Ed said, um, I, I guess one of the things that I think that complicates this, right, is, is what's gonna be going on with bottlenecks and supply side disruptions and how quickly they may in some sense normalize or improve. Because I think that that is somewhat of a wild card compared to our previous experience in situations like this. I mean, we, we could, very well, you know, as we were talking about, there there are risks where, uh, you know, I guess on the on the other hand, you know, it, things could get much better in terms of the supply side improving. Uh, yet at the same time, we know certainly with the conditions going on with China right now, that now is now adding a risk that sort of may may make that process a little bit more problematic than it was before. 
Um, and, and again, not to suggest that this is the sole consideration, but I, I do think that this makes things a little more complicated, right? Because in some sense, we're looking for the labor market to better align in some sense. We're looking, and, and then we're also looking for sort of inflation to come down. Um, but that's the supply side considerations are something that we really can't control. And yet we know that they're going to have a very important material effect in terms of the evolution of the data. And of course, you have exogenous factors coming from the ongoing war in Ukraine and energy prices and, you know, what happens to Europe. And, you know, there, there's so many factors out there that are complicating current pictures and not just the pandemic and its aftermath, but you have these other things that are playing out as well. No, that, that, and that's a great question. Um, let me just reintroduce quickly. We're talking with Robert Rich, Ednotech from the Cleveland Fed. I, this is one of those issues, and the ECB faces it, you could say, even more than us with energy prices and, and the UK faces it. Should they be using rate hikes to, if given how much energy inflation is driving, and well, just the whole the whole situation over there, driving inflation, that is it, can demand have a role? Should it have a role? So I won't comment directly on what they should be doing, uh, but let me just suggest one reason or one way to think about where or how one might want to respond to those energy crises. And that is, there's always that risk that if those energy prices become embedded in inflation expectations and you start seeing an anchoring of inflation expectations, then you may have to, to react in some sense to that. So um, I, I guess my thought would be on this that those those increases in energy prices what we're constantly looking for or are obviously very monitoring very closely is is there evidence to suggest that somehow that those are moving into inflation expectations and i'm not sure if that's a topic you want to talk about and yeah. you know a little bit but that you know if we start seeing those prices impacting people's expectations uh, we certainly know that that we would want to be preemptive and and certainly the fomc and, and has made a point of, of emphasizing the role of inflation expectations monitoring them and ensuring that they remain well anchored. And it ties into the breadth of the price increases too, right? So if it if it is just all energy, that's one thing. But I think, you know, what, what you'll learn if you look at like the input output tables is that energy is very central because, you know, there are energy tentacles that touch a lot of prices. You know, everything has to get transported and people have to drive to work. And so, you know, energy price shock can very quick, you know, sometimes it's very, yeah, very ethereal, ethereal, right? And it can just, you know, happen and it's gone. But there's other times where, you know, it gets passed through to a lot of prices and you get these second and third round effects and then it could affect wages. And, you know, I think, you know, so put differently, uh, the breadth of the shock matters. And so I'm not convinced that it's, it started off as energy, but I think you're beyond energy at this point, um, even there. Well, well you, we've talked about the, the inflation center, inflation now casting. If, if we had to predict, I don't know if you have it, a prediction for where inflation ends 2023, do we, do we have, do you have that kind of assessment or where, 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 where do you think it goes? Yeah, good question. So uh, to be clear, our inflation now casting model really focused on like the next reading or two readings. Um, so pushing out a year, you know, that, that we then turn to other forecasting models. Um, yeah, I'd go back to Rob, what Rob was saying earlier. I think that there's a you know pretty strong uh, base case that inflation comes down next year um, for the reasons that he mentioned, you know, supply chains improving, demand cooling, um, you know, just some some recalibration in the labor market. Um, we have a, a strong dollar. We have lower commodity prices. Uh, you know, energy prices are much lower now than what they had been in the summer, for example. And so if if those trends continue, um, 
you know, that does suggest that we should see some moderation in inflation. I'm seeing a, a, a core headline PCE reading around, you know, let's just say around 3% next year um, would not be unreasonable. Uh, you know, that would be, a, I think, a plausible base case. But I would say, uh, you know, that there were risks on both sides of that. You know, I'd say that there's some chance that inflation could come down more quickly if um, some of the rent issues we talked about kind of pass through very quickly. You get a slowing in the housing market, rents come down. Um, you know, you can certainly see some downward pressure from that 3% number. On the other side, though, um, you know, I think that there is certainly a possibility that inflation could hang up. And it's not just related to rents. Um, you know, that could be much more broad based. Um, you could still see other other sectors, you know, pushing through higher prices based on past cost increases. Um, you know, some of the factors that we just talked about might not play out exactly as they said. Um, you know, we have some models within our the suite of models that we look at, um, where if you look at uh, inflation dynamics from the you know the 60s and 70s, those are much more persistent. So inflation tended to be much more persistent than partly due to higher inflation expectations that had become unanchored. So you know, some of those models would suggest that inflation could still be around 4% next year. So, you know, I think you have to you have to take into account that, you know, there's certainly some weight and maybe even a decent chunk of weight on those upside risks. Um, but, you know, there's a, a base case that inflation comes down, still not back to two, but, you know, somewhere around 3% by the end of next year. That that gets into a whole nother is, is to the right number uh, that everybody says. Maybe people are going to increasingly talk about three or um, or a higher number. Is, is Are you hearing any of those conversations? The number specifically with what the what what inflation is going to be or something different from that? The, should the target be oh. more than two? Is Should it be closer to three? Well, uh, so so I'll, I'll keep Rob out of trouble, right? So, you know, I think as part of the last framework review that the FOMC conducted, right? They they basically said ex ante that, you know, we're going to we're keeping two percent as the objective, um, you know, and so I don't think we don't want to prejudge what the what the next you know review will be. You know, if we think about like the academic literature, right, there are certainly pros and cons of of any target. Uh, you know, there are costs to inflation, right? Let's just be very clear, right? You know, based off of what we're seeing today, people are very unhappy with inflation where it is. Inflation obviously is much higher than three percent. Um, but, you know, I think there, there is a strong relationship that the higher inflation is, the, the more people dislike it, for sure. And, and we have some work out of the inflation center that, that goes directly to that point. So, you know, in that sense, lower is better. When inflation was low before, people weren't complaining about it being too low. You know, it was just kind of something that they weren't even thinking about for the most part. It was off their radar screen. They could focus on other things. You know, they could focus on leisure, or, you know, going out. Um, it just wasn't on their radar screen. So, so low inflation is generally better. There are some benefits to having a higher inflation rate, and they, they largely come from the fact that when the inflation rate's higher, then you're less likely to hit the zero lower bound, you're less constrained with monetary policy. And so then the key is, you know, just where do you kind of, where do you, where do you maximize the, the parabola in some sense, right? Um, where, where do you minimize the costs? Uh, you know, so, so I think there, a 2% number is, you know, it, 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 there's, there's a reasonable case for why that is, is optimal or close to optimal. Um, and it, it sometimes it depends on, you know, where our star is. If our star is lower, then maybe you want a higher value. If our star is higher, then you can have a lower value for pi star uh, for the target inflation rate. There's a lot of good academic work on this. Um, you know, I think around two is a reasonable number. Um, but again, you know, I think there, there are reasons why you might want to revisit it, but we'll let the next uh, framework review tackle those, I think. 
Robert, this is probably our last closing question here. Um, it, it just, I'll, I'll leave it open-ended for you. And we've had a broad-ranging conversation. Any final thoughts on the economy, inflation, points that we haven't touched on that you would want to just make a point on on your views of, of what's happening in, in the economy? Yeah, so I guess maybe what I would, I'll, I'll finish up with is just, I, I'll think a little bit about sort of looking um, at some of the measures of underlying inflation. Um, those are some of the ones that we have at Cleveland. I mean, we have the, the median CPI, trim mean CPI, um, and also the median PCE in the Dallas Fed has the trimmed mean um, uh, PCE. And I guess the, the point is that while a lot of these measures are sort of looked at kind of on a 12-month change, I mean, really what we're going to be looking at and focusing on right now, I think, are a lot of what the, 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 the higher frequency movements in these series are going to be. Um, so, for example, um, you know, looking to see how these measures are, are going to be responding, whether they're going to be moving down, the one-month changes are, uh, for these measures are going to be moving down in some sense, is going to be very important. Obviously, you can't just accept one or two monthly movements as being indicative of a trend, but I think that's where a lot of attention now is, is going to be focused on, is, is really looking at these near-term movements that, uh, in these measures, and, and obviously something to kind of look through the headline measures to get a better sense of the trend. Well, this has been a fantastic conversation. Robert Rich, Ed Notech, thank you so much for joining us here on Behind the Markets. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Uh, you can listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast every week. Chris Tukes, thanks for helping us navigate this opening today. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.